This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Uh, you've heard, I'm sure today by now, you've heard what happened in New York City this morning. An attempted terrorist attack. Another one. They seem to start to blend together, don't they? But another one, thankfully, for the most part, went awry. Uh, a couple people, maybe three people, were somewhat hurt, but really the one who was hurt the most was the person who was actually the terrorist himself. Apparently, the bomb that he was trying to set off went off early, and it didn't go well for him. But you know the rest of the details. As I say, you've been hearing it all day today. You've been reading it online. But the thing that struck me the most about this story today was not just how rudimentary the apparently the explosive was that this would go like this, but how easy it clearly is now for something like this to be taken pretty much anywhere you want to take it, which is a scary thought. But if you can now get it into New York subway, you can get it pretty much wherever. I mean, we've seen things like this before. We know the Boston Marathon bombing was a very small device that was taken somewhere busy. We know that on a bigger scale, but with equally rudimentary supplies, the Oklahoma City bombing, that was on a, as I say, much bigger scale, but it does make you start to wonder. We don't need planes now. At least the bad guys don't need planes. We don't need huge stuff. All we need is some little parcel and a person who's willing to carry it. Dr. Stephanie Carvin is an assistant professor of international affairs at Carleton University with a specialty in national security issues and terrorism. She joins me now. Dr. Carvin, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, no problem. Uh, As I say, going into this, um, these days it doesn't take much, does it? It doesn't. And I think, you know, that's something that's obviously worried people um, since you know, especially in the last couple of years when we've really seen a shift in the Islamic State's, uh, Islamic State's uh, tactics where, you know, at one time it was really encouraging individuals to go over to its so-called caliphate and, um, and you know, and help it kind of do some nation-building almost. Um, and um, really since about um, late 2015, we've seen them say, okay, don't come here. We want you to attack where you are. So it's been encouraging these kinds of low sophisticated attacks and you know we've seen this in terms of cars right people just running uh, running into crowds with with vehicles um and then we've seen of course gun attacks and now unfortunately um we have this individual who uh constructed a rudimentary pipe bomb um and appears not to have done a good job thank you yeah. But yeah, so but it's um, no older. So yeah, no, it, this is a, like part of this is what we're seeing is a is a shift in tactics of the Islamic State to try and encourage its followers to um, basically carry out these low sophisticated attacks rather than traveling to Syria because obviously it doesn't have any territory anymore. But it's really no overstatement then to say that this could literally happen anywhere. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, I don't want to start pan like those sort of panic attacks, but no. um, they are thankful. You know, these attacks are still fairly rare. But I mean, we know these attacks can happen in Canada. They have happened in Canada, and uh, you know, the most recent version of this was was Aaron Driver, who was an individual in southwestern Ontario who cre- again created a homemade bomb, but uh, again, very unsuccessfully, thankfully, and was in, um, killed by police when he was. Um, in the back of a taxi. But, um, yeah, no, I think, you know, this is, but this is a shift that we've seen. And it's interesting because, you know, Al-Qaeda, for, for years, for decades after 9-11, they were trying to encourage this kind of activity, and they weren't very successful at it. But the Islamic State, for some reason, seems to have done a better job of inspiring this kind of lone actor, um, low-sophisticated attacks that can still, you know, you know, they don't do a huge amount of damage, but they leave people jumpy. 
But, you know, it's interesting. You've mentioned a couple times the sort of the lone attacker. And it's interesting whenever I hear this, because we all will hear the FBI or someone come out and say, well, it was just a lone. We don't believe there was anybody else. But when you have enough of these and they seem to be inspired by the same thing, even if it's one person who put this together in his home, is it not more than a lone attacker? Well, this is interesting as well, because there's a debate within, like, you know, counterterrorism experts, you know, at what point is someone really a lone actor? Because a lot of people say that radicalization, like to develop the mindset in order to carry out an attack for a terrorist group, you usually have to socialize in some kind of way. And, you know, so there's different debates now in terms of like, okay, well, and, and this is something that <clears throat> I think that counterterrorism investigators will certainly be looking at. It's like, who is this guy's online contacts? Did he pledge allegiance to the Islamic State before he actually carried out the attack? Was there someone, you know, from abroad or within his community egging him on? So, you know, when we say lone actor, we mean the fact that he seems to have carried out this attack by himself. Um, but there could actually be a, a network of people either online or in real life around this person. And that's definitely going to be a focus of this investigation. Yeah, we're paying so much attention right now, as we justifiably should, to whether we are going to be seeing a nuclear weapon from North Korea. The, the big, big, big possibility that a lot of these little things seem to sort of just fly and, you know, they, they get through. And again, thankfully today it was not as nearly as bad as it could have been. Because I'm, I'm trying to think what might have happened if this thing had worked. And I don't really want to. But, I mean, in a New York well, subway... Yeah. No, I, I think that's it. And, you know, transportation is, is always a very popular um, uh, area for attacks. But, I mean, this is goes kind of goes back to the argument about foreign fighters and why Canada spends so much time, you know, trying to prevent these people from going over in the first place. And that's because, you know, if this guy had gotten proper bomb training, he would have been far more successful, right? Like, if he had known how to actually, con- like, construct a proper bomb, um, you know, he would have probably caused a lot more damage. So what we want to try and prevent is people going for abroad, getting that kind of training, and then coming back to conduct a, a terror attack. That's like one of the big fears that we have. So, um, like, you know, we don't know much about this individual yet. We don't know if he traveled abroad or if he did get training from somewhere. If he did, it was pretty bad training. But um, this is something that you have to worry about with returnees. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Stephanie Carvin, Carlton International Affairs Professor, about this attack in New York today. But more specifically, Dr. Carvin, what I really find interesting now, when it's this small, when the package that is available to be used is this small, we haven't had a big attack in Canada, thankfully. We've had maybe some people who have tried the train thing once upon a time was an interesting one. But are we just lucky that Canada hasn't been subject to something yet? Or are we just not that big on the world stage? So let's just not bother with Canada. I actually think it's a combination of the two. So I actually think that in some ways we are lucky. I mean, we don't seem to have... Uh, the same terror level as what's being as what's happening in Europe right now, for example, where they're dealing with far more uh, individuals, both as a percentage of population, but also just in sheer numbers. Um, so we have that aspect. I mean, we tend to have a, a pretty relatively better situation in, in Canada. The second thing I would say is um, we've also gotten lucky in the sense that we have um, good intelligence sharing with the United States, and uh, certainly we saw that with the Via Rail attack uh, or plot that uh, came around, uh, I guess, in 2013, as well as the um, Aaron Driver incident, which you talked about in the earlier segment. In both cases, Amer- uh, intelligence from the United States is vital in, in stopping these attacks. Um, you know, 
I used to be a national security analyst myself, and one of the things we used to say, it's not if, it's when. So, I mean, the fact is these attacks will happen. It may not be from ISIS. It could be from a whole host of other organizations, um, indeed. But, um, you know, the fact is the, it's, it's a reality. These, uh, these attacks are happening, and the, really the, the best solution we have is to try and, you know, build good relations between uh, police and the community and intelligence services in the community so that when people see something or they know of something, they can speak up and come forward and say, you know, I think my friend Jimmy here is uh, up to something and I'm not comfortable with it and I just want you to know. And that's the best way to get that intelligence on the ground so you can uh, try and stop these attacks before they even get to the mobilization stage. But we've had Canadians who have crossed the border and have been part of these things. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if they hadn't crossed the border and they had actually just stayed home and tried to do it, would they not have got away with it? Um, in some cases, uh, it's hard to say in, in all the cases. There was the, the, the one case was we found out, I guess it was last year, last May, where an individual um, traveled from Canada to New York City for the purpose of uh, engaging in a terror attack. But really, there hasn't been that many that have tried to go to the United States. Most of our individuals who have traveled have tried to go to places like Somalia, Syria, Iraq, mm. um, as well as Afghanistan and Pakistan. So um, I, think, I think we're okay. I don't think we should... Um, uh, you know, downplay the, the ability of our security services to do a decent job. They do. It's just, you know, I mean, unless you want to live in some kind of crazy surveillance state. Of course. Of course. Chances are we're not going to get through it. But, I mean, look, there is some good news here, which is, you know, we're, we're, we're getting better at researching this phenomenon. And, you know, there was a study that was done uh, about two, three years ago at the University of London. And what they found was that in 50% of lone actor cases, um, kind of like this guy, there was at least one person who had some idea of what was going on. And in counterterrorism, you call that leakage. So there was some kind of leakage of information that there was a, you know, something bizarre or weird was going on. So again, it kind of gets down to this fact that we just have to make sure that, you know, people feel like they can come forward when they have information um, about someone or something that they're seeing, and they can actually, you know, raise this with someone they trust, and then that information gets passed on to the right people as fast as possible. I don't want to be indelicate about this, and I don't know how not to with this question, but if I am a suicide bomber, presumably I get one shot at this. I want to make sure that my moment is as big and as headline grabbing as possible. And because you don't get a second chance if you do it right. And so I'm thinking that that would make it so that all the big, big, big cities though, are the place where you're going to want to go and do this. So that if you're in a smaller city or a town, chances are that kind of thing is probably not going to happen in your world. Is that correct? Uh, it's, it's I think that's largely true. Um, we have seen uh, a lot of, I mean, New York City's been attacked time and time again. And if anything, I'm, I'm genuinely impressed with their resilience uh, going forward. They really kind of, you know, they, they had the subways up and running again tonight just to make sure everyone could get home. Um, yeah, that's true. But I mean, at the same time, I think the main thing to remember about these kinds of uh, terrorists is that they're opportunistic. Right. They're opportunistic. And this is why people say, well, why don't we just build like walls around things or stuff like that? I'm like, well, if you harden one target, they call that target hardening. If you, you know, try and make it more secure, it's like if you harden a target, you know, they'll just look for something else. 
So I don't want to say that like small towns are are out there. I don't think Hamilton's. I'm originally from Oshawa, so I kind of feel like an affinity for Hamilton. <laughs> um, so you know, I don't want to say Hamilton's that small, but like you know, if there's an attack on the GO train, that could affect Hamilton. Um, if there's like you know a, an attack on like kind of essential services or like a power station or things like that, could affect Hamilton. Um, so it's you know like I mean. On some level, we have to always be cautious. And again, if you see people doing things that, that you know, they, they, you should go come forward and say something. You know, if you see something, say something is the best advice. But um, the, the real challenge with counterterrorism operations, as I just said, is that, you know, these guys are opportunistic. If one road's blocked off, they'll just go for another. Dr. Stephanie Carvin, Associate, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at Carleton University. Really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me on. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. A few years back, well, let me back up for a sec. We have talked a number of times on this show about math, about EQAO, about studies in how kids are performing, new math, all those kind of things. Well, a few years back, a study was done in the States that showed American female elementary teachers predominantly were... It seems anyway, if I understand this study correctly, and my next guest is going to help me out with this, we're struggling with a lack of confidence of their own with mathematics. And when it came time then to teach their students, girls who were learning under them more than boys were absorbing those insecurities and those lack of confidences. Now, why is this an issue? Well, it's a couple of reasons. One is because we've heard a lot in the last few weeks, few months, that we want more women to be going into science, technology, engineering, and maths in university, and you need to have a strong base of math to do that and a love of math. Secondly, the issue is because in North America, the vast majority of elementary school teachers that get the students started on this are female. 90% in the States, apparently, of elementary school teachers are female. In Ontario, 83% of elementary teachers are female. So how do we fix this math problem? What is this math problem? Well, Mary Reed is a professor of math education at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Thanks for doing this tonight. Hi, thank you for having me. So just so I make sure I've got this correct, you can walk me through this. Female teachers, as I understand these studies, in many cases aren't fully confident in their math skills. And so when they're teaching to the students, they are, we're finding out, passing along some of these anxieties to their female students. Is that pretty close? Generally, yes. But, um, you know, this this was a study done by a researcher, Belock and her team. And it was done in 2009, and it studied about 22 teachers. So, you know, grain of salt, 22 sure. teachers. Um, and they all had anxiety in math. So they admitted that they had anxiety in math and followed the 22 teachers and found that they transmitted this anxiety onto their female students, but their boys did not change in their anxiety. And it also impacted their achievement. So it was quite um, a study that opened up a lot of rich discussion as to societal norms about girls. Girls are good at reading. Boys are good at math. So, um, you know, research such as this continues, and, and BLOC does a lot of research in anxiety, um, not just in gender, but in, in general, math anxiety in teachers. 
And again, the reason this has come to the fore again, I think, in a lot of ways is because this discussion of STEM, again, science, technology, engineering, and math, has, there's been a real push, a real discussion about why are more girls, more women not going into this. And the perception, or I guess the belief seems to be, well, if you go right back to the beginning when they're learning their early math, some of that love or confidence in those things has been drummed out of them. Absolutely. So it starts early. We have data from our own province, our EQAO attitudinal beliefs and values data that shows that our girls are more likely to um, be negative about I like math and I am good at math. Those two statements, boys are positively respond to those statements as opposed to girls. And the gap even widens in grade six. So looking at that kind of questionnaire data is really important. Why are girls not liking math as much when compared to boys? Or why do they not have the confidence in math? Do you have a theory? Because if the teacher is the same teacher, the same female teacher for both boys and girls in her class, do you have a theory why the boys are not absorbing this lack of confidence, but the girls are picking up the lack of confidence? So the, a lot of the research points towards the society and, and how we're bombarded with lots and lots of societal messages. There's stereotype threat theories out there that really give messages to girls. There's lack of female role models. We have, you know, look at the STEM-related or math-related fields where we have a huge underrepresentation of females and females of color in particular. So that all kind of just accumulates And then by the time our kids are in high school, they don't see, our female students don't see themselves as mathematicians or that they're capable to do post-secondary math. We've also got research from the PISA, which are the international scores. It shows that we've got uh, the boys and girls who take the math test, the math part of the test, they, um, the ones that score below 80%, the boys pursue post-secondary math more likely than the girls who score exactly the same. So we're not talking about ability. The ability is the same. It's just that boys are pursuing post-secondary math um, much at a much greater rate than girls are. You mentioned that we have a an underrepresentation of women in those university courses and in those streams of work and women of color as well. And that uh, I, I believe those numbers to be true. And, but what I don't see is the connection because I'm I'm wondering where the grade three or grade four student would normally see a woman in that line of work that would make them want to do it. You understand? Like I, I, we can see if you're a a kid who has a hockey star as your as your hero that you would say oh, I want to be just like him. But do we have whether it's boys or girls? Do we have scientists or mathematicians that grade five, grade six kids look at whether it's male or female and say I want to be like that person? Yeah, it's you're right. Societal norms is that do we actually do we appreciate those scientists in our in in our world? You're right. Hockey is put on a pedestal, right? Basketball players are put on a pedestal, but um, the academics are not. They're probably not even well known. So no, they're, but but they're not well known to yeah. boys or to girls who are students. Yeah, but if you ask a t- if you ask a, a child, please draw a mathematician they're highly likely to draw a male and a white male. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Do we have any evidence that the girls are simply not gaining confidence or are they in fact losing 
confidence as they go through their math education in elementary school? So we've got a lot of evidence that there are stereotypical gender norms. They are very strong, and they are being, our girls and boys are bombarded by these gender norms. And part of those gender norms are that uh, boys are better in math and girls are, are not as good in math. So um, girls have these, these social pressures to abide by these gender norms. And um, we see that the gap in their confidence in math, just based on the grade 3 and grade 6 EQAO questionnaire data, widens just in that three-year span. And then it even uh, exacerbates even further as they get older. So obviously we, have, we do have societal pressure on our female students to abide by these gender norms, unfortunately. And something like, and I think the number is 82%, uh, but something like 82% of our elementary teachers, and I'm talking about the female ones, maybe it's all of them, didn't major in math. They did something else at university that wasn't in math. But if I'm correct, it's been a long time since I was in elementary school, but they have to teach everything, right? So this is, so you are not, you're getting people who are not specialists in this area who now have to teach it. Correct. And that percentage is specific to grade three teachers and grade six teachers. Once mm. again, it's the question. The EQAO years. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, but on average, we have about four out of five teachers in elementary who, based on, on, the, da- on the latest results, show that they haven't taken any undergraduate math courses. Not to say that, you know, a uh, post-secondary math course is going to e- equate to being an excellent math teacher, but having that content knowledge is really important. And what my research shows is that content knowledge and math anxiety are significantly correlated. Not cause, but correlation. So if you have low content knowledge, then you're going to be really anxious and when you have to perform on a math task or perhaps teach. Do we have the same evidence that this confidence loss or whatever we're going to call it comes from male teachers as well? Unfortunately, we don't have enough male teachers to really show the numbers. And the male teachers aren't part of the societal pressure. It's, it's, the, it's the stereotypical societal norms of, of girls not being good in STEM-related fields. So that, that's those gender norms. are, and, and it's not just in the school. It's when they're on Snapchat, when they're watching TV, when they you do YouTubing. You've got, you've got females who are constantly pushing that and campaign ads and, you know, advertising. Everywhere you go, you, you have these messages that are saying um, girls should be nurturing, girls should be um, very vain about what they look like, and not so much about uh, using their head to think about good math problems. Okay, so we don't anticipate, I don't think anyone's expecting that suddenly all the female elementary school teachers across the province or the country are suddenly going to pick up and go back to university to upgrade necessarily their math skills or to take a math course in university. So for the time being, they are the ones who are going to have to somehow work their way through this. How do we fix it then? If you have the same teachers who are, str- who are not confident in their math, who are going to be the elementary teachers, short of changing the curriculum to make it more comfortable for them, which I don't know solves the problem because then you're not, the kids are not benefiting, how do you fix this? So we have amazing teachers out there, female teachers who are excellent mathematicians, and we've got to celebrate that, and we've got to highlight that, and we have to put them in leadership roles where they are mentoring others and ensuring that uh, they're collaborating, and 
we like this is one study that was done in the U.S. I mm-hmm. don't feel that there's been a study that's been replicated here in Canada, but it is an important study that's going to help us inform our own policy and program. But we need to get out there and and see what is working in our schools. And I know of many amazing female elementary teachers who should be um, highlighted everywhere because they are fabulous math teachers. Should the good, and and, you know, I mean, I know it's a difficult thing to to specify like this, but should the really good math teachers be told, you know what, let's just make you math teachers right now because we're so short on people who can do this. If you're really good at it, let's forget all the other stuff. Let's let you come into the classroom and pick up where the other teacher maybe struggles a bit. Yes, so we've got models in Asia, in China, for example, where you're specialists in elementary. Because we have that in high school. Yeah, we have that in high school where there's rotation. But this in China, it's a little bit different where they don't actually do, they don't do rotary, but they teach half the curriculum. So you're a math, science, and technology specialist, or you're an arts, language, history, geography specialist. And you would teach two classes, but half the curriculum. So it's not exactly rotary. You would still, um, the children would, would gravitate to only two teachers, but um, it, it, it works. I, that's something that perhaps, I know some schools do it. I know when I was a principal that was being done in, our, in my middle school where I had the grade 7, 8 team, um, they taught half the curriculum. So um, it, it works because the teachers were comfortable with their own subject disciplines. And uh, instead of having to teach all the different subject areas. It is a fascinating problem uh, with probably no easy solutions. There are some answers, I suppose, that, uh, that may be out there. But uh, again, very, uh, it's a really difficult one. Um, I appreciate the time, Mary. Thanks for doing this. Oh, really you're appreciate welcome. you Thanks for having sharing me. your insights. Mary Reed from the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Buffalo had a snowstorm yesterday. We were talking about that just before the break. Did you watch any of that game yesterday? I, I did watch it, and that was the reason I watched it. Exactly. Now, that was a snowstorm. That was worse than, what was it, the 96th Grey Cup here? Oh, yeah. No, no, that was, the, that was the most, I mean, there's been a lot of snow games over the years, but that was the most snow I've ever seen guys play in. Susan and I were at the um, Heritage game, the Outdoor Classic in Detroit, when they played it at, uh, guys nuts? at Michigan. Well, it was we didn't, freezing. It was, well, it's, it's January, so it's going to freeze. Holy crap, did it ever snow? I mean, it was a lot of fun other than other than uh, my toes and my fingers got a little cold. But it was very cool. That was an outdoor game. We've talked about it before, about why are they playing indoors and why not playing the elements. I mean, that game yesterday, it looks like the football players from Buffalo and Indianapolis had a lot of fun. I mean, they're doing snow angels and, right, just do just play it like that. I mean, Toronto FC, it wasn't exactly balmy there Saturday when they blew Seattle out to nothing. I was thinking about that actually uh, during the Buffalo Bills game because again, the Buffalo, the difference with the Buffalo Bills game compared to most snow games is most snow games you have a dusting of snow on the field that doesn't really affect how you play. Maybe your footing isn't Makes it a bit slippery, that's it. That's it. This was snow up to your ankles. Yeah. That you're, it's like running on the beach. And there were a couple of parts about it. First of all, anyone who's ever had a face wash in the snow knows how fun that is. Every time these guys got tackled, they got yeah. a face wash. They got Their face was covered in snow. But the other part, their feet must have been freezing. 
And I know these guys, they wear short sleeves and they'll tell you the elements don't affect me. The elements don't affect me. I'm sorry. They're sitting on the sidelines saying to each other, my feet are freezing. That would have, they would have been wet and cold and frozen. I don't know how they, uh, that, I don't know how they played it. They could have wore snow boots, a little better traction. Might've slowed them down a little bit. Nobody, nobody was going any more than eight miles an hour anyways. But I did wonder when I was watching that yesterday and I have watched almost no NFL this year, but I did watch that. Uh, I thought, what would have been the case? Because soccer generally doesn't postpone or pull, call off a game for anything other than lightning. What would have happened if TFCs, if the championship soccer game had been played, had been it had been that time, and you got a, a, a snowstorm? I assume they would have delayed it till they could clear the field because it'd be really hard to play soccer when the ball won't roll. Uh, would it would have made it more like, interesting if they decided to use a white ball. Well, that was something else from yesterday. I guess Indianapolis only travels on the road with their white uniforms, but you have a whiteout <laughs> blizzard and one of the teams is wearing all white. Who thought that through? Well, how many times did they have extra men in the field? Nobody knew. Well, you couldn't, <laughs> that's right, you couldn't tell. They couldn't see 15 they had 17 yards. guys out there once. <laughs> But we weren't really sure. We went back to the replay and we still can't tell. You know, surely if you're going to come to Buffalo in the middle of winter or near winter, I think from now on the NFL should say, can you guys, you're going to wear your white, but just in case, bring your darks as well. Because, I mean, it was funny. It was funny at times when you really couldn't even see the Colts players on the field. But again, I, I don't know what the soccer would have been. I, I have no idea. I assume they would have, because you couldn't. You couldn't dribble the ball. You couldn't have done anything with the ball if it had been that snowy. It would have been like watching a kid's kickball game. Only old guys will remember what I'm going to talk about now. I think it was Garney Henley that laid down on the sideline as, as if he was going out of the game in a playoff game. It may have been a great cup game. They hiked the ball. He stands up. Way he goes out and catches the pass because it was like a sleeper play. Like... Indianapolis could have done that with a couple guys on both sidelines. How would you ever see them? Except you couldn't throw the ball that far. Yes. The quarterback couldn't see the receivers. And, <laughs> and the other part is, whether it was because of the cold or because their hands were frozen or because the ball was getting slick, the NFL receivers, who are always sure-handed, balls were going right through their hands. Yeah. They couldn't even hold on to the ball most of the time. So, But, you know, as crazy, Don, as, as, as poorly played relative to normal NFL games that was. Because that, I mean, that was not a great, well-played game. I would still watch that 10 times out of 10 over a brilliantly played game on a perfect field in the sun somewhere. I'd watch that 10 times out of 10. What's the entertainment value? It was entertaining because nobody knew. And I've heard quarterbacks and offensive guys talk about the advantage they have because they know which way they're going to cut. And the other guys react, but by the time they react, it's like turning a tractor trailer around in a Tim Hortons drive-thru. You can't, you're not just going to pivot and go the other way. So the, 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 the advantage should certainly go to offense because they have some idea where they're supposed to go, but it doesn't play out like that because the conditions are so interesting. Yeah, interesting was a good word. But, I mean, even the offensive guys, they would try to cut and they would fall down. Yeah. And it was it was... As I say, I thought it was the height of, as you say, entertainment. It was the height of hilarity. I actually, at one point, videoed on my phone, on my TV screen, one play where a Indianapolis receiver went to dive headlong for a ball 
didn't catch it, and he just disappeared into a snowbank. <laughs> he was just gone. And it's like, this is the first time I've ever seen a player disappear into a bank of snow. And meanwhile, the referees are trying to catch up, and now they're up to their knees trying to wave the guy out of bounds. Even my wife, who doesn't watch football, was laughing that, you know, it's just so ridiculous. that it's almost like David Copperfield was refereeing. They were gone. They were gone. But no, I, I would... I was going to ask you, we were going to start with this, but I got my answer. Do you like crazy weather games? See, I love, I would, I would rather have a not well played game with some kind of challenging outdoor crazy condition than to have a perfectly played game in perfectly sterile surroundings. The Argo, Toronto Argonaut equipment guys were credited with having a big hand in their victory mm-hmm. because of changing of the footwear. I I think it's very creative. I think it's a lot of fun. I don't think you want to see it every week. It's like people who watch NASCAR because they want to see a big crash up. You don't want to see four or five a night. You don't want to see one every race, but sometimes they're fun. As long as nobody's getting hurt, go back. Go, yeah, go back to the Labor Day game. Was it Labor Day with the uh, with the Tie Cats where they had the two hour or three hour lightning, well, lightning rain delay because yeah. it was coming down? Uh, the a few years before when the Tie Cats were playing in Guelph and they had that just unholy wind. You remember yeah. there and the field goal that when you looked at it from even with the goalpost, the ball was going through and it hit this wall of wind and dropped ninety degrees, dropped straight down. These are things that, and then if you were punting the other way. You could have punted one actually from Guelph almost all the way to Hamilton. Like just get it caught in the jet stream and that thing was just going to go. It was like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. But it's the same for both sides because they, well, they no. switch ends. Well, they do eventually. Yeah, eventually, unless the wind changes. We've seen that before well, yeah, too. You're going into the wind. You go, okay, next quarter we get the wind. And then the wind has switched and you're back in the wind again for the <laughs> next quarter. I'm all for it. And this is why I would love someday to see a Super Bowl that was really, well, maybe we've had one once upon a time back in the early single digits ones, but not in the last. Maybe when they let them play at Lambeau Field. They never did. They never did, but it's, let's Frozen have, tundra. Let's have a, a Super Bowl in Lambeau. Let's see what happens. Well, they want enough of them. Yeah, well, they, do, they want, the NFL wants the players to be able to show their stuff in the best possible conditions. And I understand that. But I would love to see, I love to see what happens when you throw a wrench into their plans and like, look at, again, look at the Buffalo coaches and the Indianapolis coaches yesterday. They showed up, they've been practicing all week. They showed up with a playbook that probably had 400 plays in it. And by the time the game kicked off, they were probably down to about 10 plays. And they win it with a dive left. With a simple, simple play that on any other day. He goes nowhere. He goes nowhere. I love that stuff. I think that that was, uh, I, I mean, the, and that was exactly, frankly, this year what the NFL needed. I'm not sure that the NFL are as concerned about their players playing in a perfect condition as they are their sponsors enjoying nice weather. I oh, mean, 100%. It, it's, a, it's a sponsorship. You're talking about the Super Bowl, 100%. Yeah, it's all about the sponsors and the schmooze fest. I mean, that's why the Hall of Fame game or whatever it is, the All-Star game is in Florida or Miami or Hawaii. But, you know. It used to be. They don't even do that anymore. No. Well, they shouldn't have. Never should have. It was flag football. They, um, but you you got to know that the sponsors are saying we're not going to Green Bay. But you want to know something? I'm starting to think. There's a website, and I don't know the name of it. I'll try and find it. 
that this year has been keeping track with pictures and tweets and everything else of NFL Stadia. And more than I can ever remember, and I don't know if it's because of the game, I don't know if it's because of concussions, I don't know if it's because of Colin Kaepernick and guys kneeling, I don't know what the thing is, but more empty seats in the NFL this year than ever, than ever. Looks like a home game for the Florida Panthers. There are tons in a lot of these places, a lot of games, and we're not talking about before kickoff. These are pictures taken after kickoff during the game. Tons of empty seats at NFL games. Apparently yesterday at one of the games, I can't remember which one, they were offering seats for three bucks. They were just trying to get rid of them, just trying to put people into the stands. If that continues, and again, I don't know if it's the Kaepernick effect. I don't know if it's people getting uncomfortable with concussions. I don't know if the costs are too high. I don't know what what it is. But if that starts to continue, you may have to say to your sponsors, tell you what, let's build this thing back up to where it was, and then we can come back to you. But in the meantime, we've got to do something spectacular to drag all the eyeballs to us. And that game in Buffalo yesterday, it was on, I read that it was on in only 4% of American markets, that game. I guarantee you more people went looking for videos, for tweets, for highlights of that game than any other game. The only other thing yesterday that maybe got as much interest, weirdly enough, was Philadelphia in first place, first team to clinch a playoff spot, their quarterback blowing out his knee and being done for the year. I bet people looked that up. And Houston's quarterback getting a concussion clearly and then being allowed to go back on the field. People went and looked up that hit. After that, it was Buffalo. And that game was, a, as I say, not a good game, but man, was it fun to watch. I hope they do that. I, I, I hope they do that. Not every week, I agree with you, but often. I hope it happens often. I hope next time it's hurricane force wins. You try and throw up, you know, complete a 200-yard pass through the air. I know there's not 200 yards in the field, but um, you know what I mean. I just, I'd love to see, throw every condition challenge at the guys and let's see how they can do it. Not everyone wants that. Some people don't want that, but I, I love that stuff. Well, the NFL just re-signed their commissioner to a $200 million contract. I would say it's a good thing he got it when he did because nobody's going anymore. I'm going to look up that website, see if I can find it during the commercial break here. Uh, I'll come back with the name if you want to see this. It's, uh, it's worth taking a look at. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. From the last segment, I said, if you want to go see the pictures of all these NFL stadia and the problems they're having, well, the site that I had found and that I had seen these pictures on, and I don't know anything about this site. I don't know if it's left wing, right wing, no wing. I have no idea. All I know is there's pictures and I'm going by the photos. A gateway pundit, thegatewaypundit.com. If you want to look it up, thegatewaypundit.com. I don't know anything about the editorial slant. But during the commercial, Don and I were simply looking at photos that were taken of NFL Stadia and a um, lot of empty seats. And I don't know how you spin empty seats in a photo into left wing or right wing or anti-NFL or pro-NFL, but look at the pictures, you decide. Let us jump to a different sport, Don. Uh, and this is, I don't, I mean, I want to talk about baseball sort of because the Yankees make a huge trade getting Giancarlo Stanton Saturday or Sunday, whenever it was, from the Miami Marlins. But I don't want to talk about that specifically, more generally. Because if I'm the Toronto Blue Jays, and you can take it as whatever team you want to be, if you are in a division with a team that clearly appears 
like it is going to clobber everybody else now. And maybe they won't. We've seen times before when trades backfire and they don't work out. But the Yankees already were very good last year. They had Aaron Judge. They had all these guys. They're a young team. And now they add a guy like him. If you're the Blue Jays, if you're any other team who looks and sees your competition just loading up, and you are in a... You're not really sure whether you're going for it or whether you're going to tear down and rebuild. Does that answer your question for you? Do you just at that point say, why in the world would we go for it this year, even though our fans may want us to? We have no chance. Let's just take our time now and start the rebuilding process and hope that by the time we're good, they've worn themselves out. Or you say, we're going to entertain offers to sell our team. Well, they could do that. They did. I know, but they're not, no one yet that I've heard is suggesting we're going to move. Just, yeah, the team could be up for sale. But in the meantime, if you're the general manager and assuming he still has autonomy to make trades of some kind, do you say, look, we can still win this thing. We've got some guys. If everything goes right, if our best players, if our highest paid players stay healthy and have a great year and don't get injured and... We can still take these guys on, or do you say, look, the chances of us pulling it all together one more time against a young, clearly better team are slim. Let's let's just start over. How do you rebuild, though? What's he got, eight years left? Judge is, what's Judge, 16 years old? I mean, he's going to play forever, and, and if he carries on, make whatever he wants. The point, the interesting point in your comment is that the Yankees are young, and they've built from within. And what the Yankees do when they build from within and get four or five good young guys, then they go out and pay whatever they have to to augment their base core. And unless you can do that or you think you can do it, then you're in big trouble. I mean, this is not, well, you know what, they've got, you know, Reggie Jackson's getting old. And, you know, I mean, it's it's not like they got a bunch of guys at the end of the, end of the career here. I mean, they've got an outstanding young team that they have just made better. So if I think if I'm running the Blue Jays, I put my finger in my mouth and stick my finger in the air and say, try and figure out which way the wind's going and see what's going to be the easiest to sell. Because you're sure not going to sell anybody on the fact that we know we can beat the Yankees. So you're not talking about selling players. You're talking about selling as far as marketing. Marketing, yeah. Like what will the fan base accept as an explanation, can we get out of this by saying we're going to tear it down while we can still get rid of rid of Donaldson and get some real good assets and we're going to be all set to go? It's going to be a short rebuild. Do you think they'll buy that or do you think they'll buy? We had four or five guys that had a bad year last year. If they can come to the level, not exceed anything they've done before, but do what they did two years ago, we know we can play with the Yankees. And if you think you can sell that, that's what you sell because they just put ticket prices up. Mm. And when you talk about autonomy for the general manager, I'm pretty sure he wasn't in the trade talks with Miami. Oh, no. No, so that's uh, not autonomy. You, you've got autonomy. No, Stanton, Stanton had a no trade clause, and it was clear who he was only going to accept. He was, he, there were two teams that he would accept a trade to, so, and the Jays were not in there. So there's no, not even any point. Well, and then and they, plus, you weren't going to be taking on $250 million more in salary. That's why he doesn't have autonomy. They, they say to him, you know what? You can go do whatever you want. Here's another $6 million. Which at this point gets you a third string, five foot seven Ecuadorian backup second baseman. 
I mean, that's that's. I and mean, the league's loaded with those guys. There's lots of well, not Ecuadorian ones. I don't think there's an Ecuadorian player in Major League Baseball. That would be cool to have one of those. You brought it up. But five foot seven, the backup middle <laughs> infielder. Though I mean, they went and got a backup middle infielder this year already. That was their big move so far. Yeah. So yeah, that'll that'll keep your rate in step with the Yankees. Yeah. So the and Jays get Stanton, and they're bringing back Aaron Judge, and that's what they're going to sell to their fans. And what the Jays are going to sell to their fans is, yeah, we got a backup second baseman who's pretty decent. Had good numbers in the seven games he played last year. <laughs> that's right. He's he's pretty. Um, Adequate in Durham. Yeah, he's a, that's that's his that's his selling point. Well, how would you describe him as a player? Well, I would say he was pretty adequate. Yeah, he's. Uh, if things go really well, he might break the Mendoza line. We were really surprised when we tried to get him; he'd be available. Yeah, that's like the draft pick. Line. The draft pick, yes, yes. No, that's uh, yeah. Every team has always been shocked by every draft pick they've ever been able to get because I was sure he would be gone twenty-seven picks before this. We picked him in the 23rd round, and we had him in the top five. So when <laughs> the general manager says that, you say, he better fire his scouting staff, because apparently nobody else had him in the top 25. Well, no one told the general manager that he lost his leg to flesh-eating disease the year before, and he was still high on their draft board. I mean, it was, there are all these cases where guys get, where we hear that, that oh, he, we, we had him so much higher. Well, there's some reason why no one's taken this guy. There's some reason why no one is taking this guy. But I go back to this thing. I am, I am, if I'm the Jays and I look at Boston that actually had a decent year last year, but not the kind of year that they could have had. Boston could have actually been a lot better than they were last year. David Price missed a huge chunk of the season. Chris Sale got tired as the year went on and started to wear down. They fired their, fired their manager. They've got a new manager coming in. Boston could be considerably better. The Yankees are probably going to be considerably better. And even if you can, and now remember, you've got to beat, those two teams can finish ahead of you. There's two wild cards now, but that means you've now got uh, the new Japanese phenom in California with the, or within uh, Los Angeles. And that means probably there are going to be guys that want to play with him. So they'll be able to attract some free agents. And Houston is not going to stink this year. They won the World Series this year. And you look down the list, Detroit might be pretty good. I mean, Cleveland is going to be really good. Minnesota surprised everyone last year. I'm looking at the Jays, if I'm if I'm being honest, and I know you're right, you've got to sell this team. You've got to market it and you've got to sell tickets. Who can you convince people you're going to beat? Well, that's why I'm saying. they've What they've got to do is figure out what they're going to try and sell. And they will, they will they're like the government. They will do opinion polls and have their... Um, geniuses sort out what people will swallow. And whatever they think they can sell is what they're going to be selling. Do you think that in the wake of Houston bottoming out about three or four years ago, I mean, we're terrible for two or three years, atrocious for two or three years, and right in their backyard, the Maple Leafs bottomed out and were terrible for two or three years, could the Jays sell... We are bottoming out on our way back to the top. We are trampolining. We are boiling. We're on the boing part, and we're going to shoot back up in another year or two. Stick with us because we are in the low ebb, but wait for two years. Wait till you see what we're going to be when we ricochet. You know my friend Pat LaForge ran the Oilers for more than a decade. I remember after he was there a couple of years, and they were not having much success, and we were sitting on the deck having a tea, 
And I said to him, what are you selling? He said, history. And then they went to the Stanley Cup Finals. So two years later, they hadn't made the playoffs. And I said, what are you selling? He said, the future. Right? So you got to find something. I got to find something to sell. That's why I know that's what they're going to do. So they were selling history. Wayne Gretzky, Messier, and everything else. They have that blimp. They have a whole bunch of success. They fall flat in their nose. Now he's selling the future because they're getting first-round draft picks. He may be happy he's not there because I don't know what Edmonton are selling now. I just would hate to imagine that we're going to go back to the Jays days when every Friday was Throwback Friday or a Throwback Thursday mm. where the Lloyd Mosby gets trotted out again. Or $2 Tuesdays. Well, two, I wouldn't mind $2 Tuesdays. Now your cheap day is going to be $25 Tuesday. Those days of the, uh, Pop, the Dominion tickets are long gone. That Paul, that was Paul Godfrey come in and put a stop to that because as soon as you start selling tickets for 2 bucks, that's what they're worth, mm. 2 bucks. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. The NHL this week didn't say that Seattle was going to be joining, but all yes. but said Seattle. Yes, they was, did. All but said. They said, give us a billion dollars Canadian and you can get in. When I heard the $650 million price tag, that is the first time I thought Hamilton, I know you don't think so, Hamilton won't get an NHL team. Oh, what, you're talking to yeah. Who? I don't. I don't know about Seattle, but th- I mean, okay. Let's bring up Hamilton for a second. I wasn't going to go here because I, I am not of the belief that uh, that it's going to happen. But let's say Gary Bettman tomorrow called up Fred Eisenberger and said, "You find yourself an owner, and you can have an NHL team. Three, four, five hundred million dollars to fix up the arena or build a new one, more likely, and eighty million a year for salaries. So we're up to six hundred million right off the bat for the first year, plus moving costs, plus startup costs. So say six hundred million, and now a billion dollars for the franchise. So we're at one point six billion dollars for an NHL team. Who in Hamilton or even near Hamilton? is going to look at this market and say, yeah, $1.6 makes good sense. Um, That's the right answer. There's nobody. You can't, you can't make your money back or even close to it at $1.6 billion. No, and I think you're high. Thanks. I think it's... I, <laughs> <laughs> I saw the marijuana store downstairs. I knew something was up. The, uh, I think it's $1.4 I think your number talking okay, crazy. 1. 1.4, 1.5, 1.6. Yeah. There isn't anybody around, even, you know, if, if, if Ron Joyce was 30 years younger and a billionaire, he's a smart business guy. I'm sure he would have loved to have had an NHL team at $50 million and would look at it and say, you'd never get your money back. It doesn't make any sense. And these guys that are smart will borrow money to do that because they have the equity to back up the loan. But now, even with interest rates a bit higher now, like, if you borrow a billion dollars at five percent, yeah, compared holy. to six per, compared to four percent, and yeah. what were the Leafs valued at one point six billion? Well, right? okay, so if 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 you could actually get a one billion dollars for an expansion franchise in Seattle, the Leafs are now immediately worth four billion, or yes. three, or three something. That, but I mean, think about that as well. Ron Joyce, you bring up Ron Joyce's name. Ron Joyce, a very successful businessman. Everyone knows from Tim Hortons, the guy who has made loads of money, has done very, very well for himself. I don't know if he qualifies as a billionaire. 
I don't know if he has a billion dollars. He's, he's he'd be he'd be he's over a billion in net worth estimated. So, but anyway, so but that would mean that every dime that he ever made, collected, put in the bank, whatever, he would have to put towards a team, and he still wouldn't have enough money to buy an NHL team and bring it here with the arena and every other cost that would go here. That's an it's a it's an insane amount of money that the NHL is asking. Now they may find someone in Seattle willing to do this. I think that person would be completely out of their tree. What? The guy's already made an application. Yeah, but has he heard the billion dollars yet? Has he agreed to the billion? That's a different thing. Well, I don't too. imagine he sent the letter in without some. He knew it was half half a billion to start with. Okay, but it, so so the fact is, there is probably some. He figures some negotiating ability in this thing. That yeah, if he can get it for four hundred million. 450, what did Vegas cost? 500? 500. They're not so buying okay. it for less than 500. Right, so even 500 million. 500 million US, which is 750, whatever it is. Maybe I can pull that together if I also have an NBA team in this arena. Then with all the nights, but when you start getting up into the the really, really insane numbers, the really crazy numbers, the billion, whatever else, billion plus, man, I, I just, I don't. But here's the other thing. Is Seattle, do you do you think that Seattle will even work as an NHL market? And I don't mean work like we'll get some people in. Like, do you think it'll really work as an NHL market? Works pretty well as a soccer market. It does. But they have, and it works very well as an NFL market. Here's here's what I think, and it doesn't matter. And for those that think we're a little wacky on our numbers, we've we've kind of converted the 650 American into Canadian dollars. And I know it doesn't add up to quite a billion, but it's, as close as damn is to swearing. Um, Julie in my office went down to watch a concert in Detroit, and she come back raving about downtown Detroit. Now, they've cleaned a lot of it up. They burned a lot of it down. They tore a lot of it down. She said that arena was spectacular. There's restaurants. It's a shopping place. I mean, it's a what they call an entertainment precinct, like L.A. Live that has uh, 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 Nokomi's Theater, that's not right, but close. Um, you know, it has ESPN. So you need, the, it has to be a fabulously large real estate play. Mm-hmm. You can't do it just on the hockey team. You've got to have the arena. You've got to have Saks of Fifth Ave. You've got to have Ruth Chris Steakhouse or Keg Steakhouses. I mean, you've got to make this thing sparkle and you got to believe it will pay. And the problem is the only place I think now that's big enough to handle it is another team in Toronto. We might pull it off in Hamilton. I think it could be done, but it's not going to be done with any of my money. And, and I'm just short $1.4 to do it. But I don't know. See, I don't, think we, I don't think we're in the ballpark even remotely anymore. Even if we were at one time, if you're paying that much money, you want to be in downtown Toronto. You want to be, and, and not even up in the suburbs anymore like they once talked about. You want yeah, to be Vaughan. in downtown Toronto where all the money is and where you can suddenly say, you know what, we can we can make this thing go. And I don't know, without the Raptors in the building, if you open a second arena in Toronto, I mean, the only way this thing might actually work, and I don't know how, is if you somehow had Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment sell a chunk of it to one of their guys who buys his way out of MLSE, but they're on good terms and they all can use the same arena. And that's never going to work because they want the revenue. It's, I just don't see even in Toronto a way that... Well, in in LA, the... It's not the Forum. What do they call it? The LA Arena. Well, the Staples Center. Staples Center. There you go. They have two NBA franchises and NHL team and concerts. 
Like that thing is busy 340 days a year. Yeah, for sure. You can do that in Toronto. If you can cut a deal. If you can cut a deal. That's right. If you can cut a deal. But with the Maple Leafs right now, I don't see how the Maple Leafs want to give up any of their territory. Not a bit. That Why would they? But I don't think you want to end up in Vaughan either. The only way I think the Toronto Maple Leafs consider that as an option, if they think there's a real challenge that somebody will buy a franchise, the NHL will give it to them, and they'll build a building. Then it's almost a preemptive strike to say, you know what, come into our building. Because they'll cut their losses by doing that because if the new venue is spectacular. I mean, again, MLSE was a real estate play. Look at the condo towers. Mm -hmm. Look at uh, uh, real sports. It was a real estate play where they made all the money. So if somebody else does that on the Portlands and cuts a deal, and they can put an entertainment precinct... MLSE might say it might be a lot smarter for us just to let them play in our building. Maybe. maybe. No competition for concerts. But what do you have to pay then to be in that building? And again, now you're talking about costs, whether it's indemnification or whether it's just lease, but you're talking about that one and a half billion or whatever one billion goes way up. And how anyone could ever make any money back. The only thing you're doing then if you buy an NHL team at this point, for a billion dollars Canadian, the, you're not even hoping to make your money back. You're just holding on to that until you can sell it and hope that it goes up as far as an investment. Well, the interesting thing will be, I want to see what Carolina, which apparently is on the cusp of being sold. Um, and it's probably one of the least valuable NHL teams. But it'll be interesting to see what you can buy that for. Yeah, that's what I mean, because it's one of the least valuable teams. But it probably went from, and I'm guessing, $150 million now to 300 or $400 million. Oh, it would have to. Wouldn't you expect that you'd have to get at least as much as an expansion? You team? would think so, but I don't know if you would. That's that's the interesting thing. That's why fans are not on Gary Bettman's side, but the the he works for the owners. So if you think your franchise is worth two hundred fifty million dollars because you can't draw flies, and he's selling new ones for six hundred fifty million, I'm voting the guy a raise. Get twenty million per owner. Not that. It's the guy that franchises worth two fifty that he may now get half a million dollars. Well, that's what for, I mean. Or you're six, getting twenty million plus your franchise value has gone up. He probably doubled some of the franchises if he gets the six fifty. The five hundred was a good start. Everybody loves Gary Bettman. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from six to eight on nine hundred CHML.